0: Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied Powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours Programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the Peace Conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he explores the interests of the British Empire and its dominions in Africa and in the Pacific. In
1: 1914, the British Empire was unlike any of the other major empires that became involved in the First World War. It was truly global. Its holdings spread from Australia at one extremity of the world to the United Kingdom at the other side of the world. What is striking about this empire is that it has no obvious administrative coherence and no obvious rationale to explain its existence. In 1883, the historian J.R. Seeley wrote a book called The Expansion of England, which said we seem to have conquered half the world in an absence of mind, with no real sense of what we're doing. And that lack of coherence is embodied in the way in which the British Empire was governed. India had its own government department, the India Office, with its own Secretary of State. The Crown Colonies and Protectorates had their own department, the Colonial Office. And each of the so-called white dominions, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada, were self-governing and could take their own decisions in terms of domestic policy, although their foreign policy was tied to that of Great Britain. So there isn't a central department for the empire. From the 1880s, there is pressure to find some rationalisation, and there are two reasons for that. One is that in the early days of industrialization, with Britain as the first industrial nation of the world, Britain could essentially command the world's markets through free trade its goods will be more cheaply produced and more readily exported than those of other countries. By the 1880s, Germany in particular, in terms of European powers and the United States, are providing real competition for Britain in terms of export markets. There is an argument in consequence for territorial control as a way of ensuring the raw materials that you need can be imported to Britain and that the finished goods that you then produce in Britain can be effectively sold. The other argument that reduces pressure for rationalization in the empire is what is known to historians as the scramble for Africa, the moment when other European countries, particularly France to begin with, but then also Germany, Belgium, Portugal, are also seeking colonial territories, especially within the African continent, still seen as open ground. During the 1880s, in a conference convened by Otto von Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany, African territories essentially divvied up between the European powers. Britain itself does not actually need more territory and isn't particularly acquisitive in its behaviour, but it takes part in that process. The ideas that provide more coherence in terms of what Britain is doing in the empire can be divided into three before 1914. The first idea is that the centre of empire, the jewel in the crown, is India. And that, therefore, one of the reasons for Britain being interested in Africa is that Africa lies on the route between Britain and India. Either you're going through the Mediterranean and then through the Suez Canal and into the Indian Ocean, or you're going around the Cape of Good Hope around South Africa. So Britain needs to secure the periphery of Africa in order to guarantee its trading routes to India and to the Far East. The second explanation for empire is essentially a forerunner of today's commonwealth. The idea that the empire will have to evolve in the 20th century, that it will have to produce a structure which gives advantages to the members of the empire and treats the members of the empire as more equal. In the context of the late 19th century, that equality is essentially equality between the white dominions, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Canada. A group of young men clustered around Alfred Lord Milner, the High Commissioner in South Africa at the time of the South African War of 1899 to 1902, develop these ideas. They're called Milner's Kindergarten. They include John Buchan, the novelist and future Governor-General of Canada, Geoffrey Dawson, the editor of The Times, Fabian Ware, the man who will set up the imperial, later the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. They're looking towards a multilateral organisation. They know there's a problem with this idea because where is India in the white dominions? They recognise India will become independent at some point, but from their point of view, it's remote. The third set of arguments for rationalising the empire centres on the economic argument, on the decline of what has been called informal empire, that trade will be enough to give Britain its global reach, and its replacement by a form of protectionism that... Preference should be given to imperial trade. Tariff reform becomes the argument. The spokesman here above all is Joseph Chamberlain when he is Secretary of State for the colonies, again at the time of the South African War. These are the ideas that are in flow in the decade before the First World War. None of these three ideas has found concrete expression in imperial policy before 1914. But what has found concrete expression are the needs of imperial defence. Each of the treaties that Britain draws up with other powers before 1914 can be understood in the context of empire. So in 1902, Britain ends its so-called splendid isolation with a treaty with Japan. What that does is relieve Britain of the pressures generated in the Pacific And in Central Asia, by the rise of Russia, Japan becomes a counterweight to Russia and allows Britain to stop having to deal so much with the defence and security of the Pacific. In 1904, Britain signs its entente with France, which will become of crucial importance in continental Europe during the First World War. But the impulses in 1904 are, for both countries, very largely imperial. Both the North African powers, Britain is interested in Egypt, France in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, and they essentially agree their spheres of influence and interest in the Mediterranean and North Africa. But they also do things like resolve a long-standing dispute over Newfoundland and Atlantic fisheries. So, this too has an imperial impulse. This removes a source of long standing Anglo French rivalry and replaces it with a degree of common security built around their respective colonial interests. The third of these treaties is with Russia in 1907. Russia, the other big long standing 19th century opponent, the threat to India, it seemed, as Russia penetrated Central Asia and moved towards Afghanistan and the northwest frontier of India the Anglo-Russian Entente immediately removes an imperial threat. Now, those three agreements will all get applied to the war in Germany in 1914, but the important point here is that what they're doing is providing a wide geographical reordering of Britain's global interests and how it manages them, and a recognition that its imperial security is linked to great power understandings rather than great power competition. Within that, there is a second development, the development of the practicalities of imperial defence. In 1902, after the South African War, Britain forms a committee of imperial defence, a body on which both government ministers and service chiefs sit in order to discuss imperial defence and to provide advice to the cabinet in terms of how it should act and what threats it should address. It is imperial defence that underpins the reform of both the Royal Navy and the British Army in the run-up to 1914. The British Expeditionary Force is created for imperial defence in the first instance. When a general staff is created for the British Army between 1904 and 1906, it is very quickly renamed the Imperial General Staff with the idea that it will set standards in its armed forces which go beyond Britain and embrace the defence forces of the white dominions as well, so that they can fight together on the battlefield. Empire provides a logic for defence by 1914. When the First World War breaks out in 1914, it is, in many respects, a war between empires. But that does not make it a war for empire. The great powers involved in the July 1914 crisis are not themselves going to war in order to get more colonies. What's at stake are issues within Europe. But having gone to war, particularly for Britain, the mechanisms of imperial defence kick in and are used the better to enable Britain to fight this European war. So what you have going on in 1914 itself is a British desire to concentrate their imperial resources, their imperial capabilities, the forces that can be contributed by the colonies and dominions, in the European theatre to fight a European war. The corollary of that is that Germany sees the opportunity to weaken Britain by taking the war beyond Europe, by widening it to the British Empire so that Britain is prevented from concentrating those resources. As a result, from the very beginning of the war, both countries have an imperial dimension, a colonial dimension to what they're doing. The British Committee of Imperial Defence meets on the 5th of August 1914, the day after the outbreak of the war, and says very clearly, we are not fighting this war for the annexation of German colonies. But what we do need to do is close down the German wireless stations and ports, which will provide the international network which will sustain German cruiser warfare, the German naval campaign, which will be conducted against the empire's sea lines of communication. So for Britain, this war is not a war for the acquisition of more territory. And yet we have this paradox that by 1919, the British Empire will be at its greatest ever territorial extent. What drives that in the first instance is not the desire for acquisition of territory by Britain, but the desire for acquisition of territory on the part of Britain's dominions, specifically of New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. In 1897, the then Prime Minister of New Zealand had said Samoa is New Zealand's Alsace-Lorraine he was referring to the two territories that France had lost after its defeat by Germany in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. France, or Alsace-Lorraine, is integral to France, and here is a New Zealander saying Samoa is integral to New Zealand. What actually happened to Samoa in 1899 was its partition between Britain, the United States, and Germany. From then onwards, German Samoa becomes part of a network of cruiser bases around the Pacific and is therefore implicitly part of this naval campaign that Germany will fight in the event of war. So when the war breaks out and when the Committee of Imperial Defence meets on the day after Britain's entry to the war on the 5th of August 1914, it requests of both Australia and New Zealand that they take action against Germany's colonies in the South Pacific. New Guinea has been added to Samoa by Germany. The German trading base had been established there in 1885, and in 1899 it becomes formally a German territory. Australia and New Zealand respond to that request from the Committee of Imperial Defence by meeting together and deciding that they will operate jointly, first of all against Samoa, which will be taken by New Zealand troops, and, secondly, against New Guinea, which will be taken by Australian troops. The need for them to act in coordination is driven by the fact that New Zealand doesn't have its own navy, whereas Australia has a naval squadron which can be used to carry the soldiers to these two places. We think of the ANZACs of the Australian new Zealand Army Corps as setting sail for Gallipoli and then for Europe, as taking part in a war on the other side of the world. They only do that, the Anzacs, after they have secured the territory that New Zealand and Australia specifically want for themselves. The New Zealanders arrive in Samoa at the end of August 1914 and take it without any exchange of arms. It's a peaceful conquest. There is resistance when the Australians arrive subsequently in New Guinea, principally because the Germans do have a wireless station there. It is therefore even more important strategically to Germany than is Samoa, and the fighting results in what can be seen by many as a more hostile environment for the German population in the subsequent occupation. So by Christmas 1914, you have New Zealand and Australia behaving imperially, behaving colonially. Historians now call this sub-imperialism. New Zealand and Australia... Are the drivers in making Samoa and New Guinea into extensions of their two countries, establishing themselves as commercial powers within those two colonies, behaving in ways that today will be seen as racist in their reactions, not only to the local populations, but also to those who've come in from outside, such as the Chinese who have emigrated from mainland Asia. By 1916, it was British policy to recognise both Samoa and New Guinea as New Zealand and Australian territory, respectively. And that acquisition of those two places by the two dominions was recognised in the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the war, and they became League of Nations mandates allocated to New Zealand and Australia in 1920. In December 1941... Japan entered the Second World War by attacking the United States Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbour. And it then extended its empire southwards from the North Pacific to the South Pacific. In January 1942, Japan invaded New Guinea. There is fierce fighting on New Guinea from then on until 1945. The Australian hold on New Guinea is, however, confirmed after the end of the war. The League of Nations, which had been created during the Paris Peace Conference, had given a mandate to Australia for the governing of New Guinea in 1920. At the end of the Second World War, the position of the League of Nations is taken by the new body, the United Nations. And in 1946, the United Nations renewed that mandate, which Australia continued to hold until 1975. So it was not until 1975 that Papua New Guinea, as it is today, achieved its independence. Samoa achieved its independence sometime before in 1962. That is the moment when the New Zealand mandate, also reconfirmed by the United Nations, ended. The other region where sub-imperialism took hold was sub-Saharan Africa. Germany had colonies in Africa in 1914, in southwest Africa, today's Namibia, and in East Africa, in what in British hands became known as Tanganyika and what is today Tanzania. Exactly the same principles as had applied in the South Pacific applied in Africa. That is to say, the Committee of Imperial Defence wanted these colonies closed down as cruiser bases for German cruisers and as staging posts for the German network of wireless stations. As in the South Pacific, they looked to the nearest dominion, that is South Africa, to act on behalf of Britain. So South African troops first see service in the First World War within their own continent, within Africa. And this war becomes a war of South African imperialism between 1914 and 1916. To understand how this happens, we need to backtrack to the South African War of 1899 to 1902. Although Britain had won that war, there were many Afrikaners, many Dutch South Africans who were deeply unhappy with the outcome. In 1907, the Union of South Africa is created by uniting the Boer republics with the British colonies, and the leadership of this united South Africa is entrusted to those Afrikaners who are loyal to the British Empire, preeminently Louis Botha and Jan Christian Smuts, both of them distinguished Boer commanders in the South African War, and both of them to wear the uniform of the British Empire in the First World War. When the summons from the Committee of Imperial Defence for help in dealing with the German colonies of Africa arrives in Pretoria, their immediate reaction is to accept this willingly as an opportunity to show South African loyalty to the British Empire. Not all Afrikaners agree. The so-called bitter enders, those who refuse to reconcile themselves to the British Empire, stage a rebellion within South Africa in 1914. And they cross the border to go to German Southwest Africa in order to make common cause with Germany against the British Empire. For the Afrikaners in the South African government, this becomes a test of domestic control as much as of international expansion, if you like. In 1914-15, the South Africans very quickly successfully overrun. German Southwest Africa. So they move to the Northwest and they secure the German bases that face onto the Atlantic. The problem is that the South Africans who immediately benefit from this expansion are British South Africans rather than the Afrikaner South Africans. Afrikaner interests lie not so much to the Northwest as to the Northeast. What the Boer Republics of old had wanted was to be able to expand as far Northeast as the Zambezi River and to secure control of the Delagoa Bay. Those territories lie in Mozambique, then a Portuguese colony. In 1914, Portugal is still neutral. But in 1916, Portugal joins the Allies, not because this has any particularly European interest. It doesn't have any particular gripe with Germany as a continental European power. It does so because it wants to expand its African colonies. It sees the war as an opportunity for overseas expansion. So Portugal is behaving imperially, just as South Africa is doing so. The plan that gets hatched in Pretoria is if we, the South Africans, can effectively overrun German East Africa, in which fighting has been going on since 1914 between Britain and Germany, if we can effectively secure that, then we can do a swap with the Portuguese. We'll give them German East Africa, and they will give us the chunk of territory which will give us control of the Delagoa Bay and take the South African territories up towards the Zambezi River and the northeast. So in 1916, South Africa makes a major contribution to the campaign in East Africa and it shifts from being essentially a war along the frontier between British holdings in East Africa, Kenya and Uganda, and German holdings, that is to say, Tanzania as it is today. The British imperial forces, very largely made up of South Africans and under the command of Jan Christian Smuts, overrun most of German East Africa by the end of 1916. In many respects, The First World War is the last stage in Europe's scramble for Africa. In order to conquer East Africa, Smuts has to coordinate his actions not just with the Portuguese to the south, but also with the Belgians who are to the west in what is today Rwanda. All three countries, South Africa, Belgium and Portugal, are now looking to the post-war settlement and to the expansion of their African holdings. The problem for all three countries is that Britain itself has now changed its position. It has recognised the importance of East Africa to the system of the British Empire. It harks back to that argument that India is the jewel in the crown of the British Empire. East Africa lies on one of the central routes to India. If India is the hub of the empire, then British shipping that is going through the Mediterranean, Suez Canal and out through the Red Sea is going to pass East Africa. If the Suez Canal is closed and British shipping passes round the Cape of Good Hope, it too will pass East Africa. So the security of the Indian Ocean routes to India pivot around East Africa. This means that by 1917-1918, Imperial interests in London are weighing in and saying, there's no question of divvying this up between Portugal and South Africa. We should be looking at Britain's wider imperial concerns. When the Paris Peace Conference begins in 1919, therefore, British policy is that Germany's Africa should become a British mandate, should be held in trusteeship by Great Britain, not by South Africa. And that's exactly what happens. East Africa, Tanganyika as it becomes, is a British mandate and remains under British control until it achieves independence in 1961. What South Africa does get out of this war is control of Southwest Africa. That becomes a South African mandate at the end of the First World War. And in many respects, South Africa's occupation is, from the German point of view, a very benign one. German settlers are able to remain. German businesses continue, and even today, visitors to Namibia will comment on the degree of evident German influence which is still present. South Africa's mandate is renewed by the United Nations in 1946, but they forfeit it in 1966, not least because of apartheid, and that is the moment when German Southwest Africa becomes the independent state of Namibia. Next time, I shall be looking at the imperial interests of Japan and the ways in which the First World War furthered those, both in mainland Asia and in the Pacific.
0: That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.